Tune Review, Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Cune Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at cunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M. Or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 This is from The National on Friday the 8th of December 2023. From the News section. Court rejects Nicholas Ross's attempt to delay US extradition. This article is written by Ross Hunter. Judges have rejected moves made by a man facing extradition to the United States to give him more time to fight the order. Nicholas Rossi, 36, lodged an appeal against the extradition order earlier this year with the High Court, which was heard in Edinburgh on Thursday. Scottish ministers signed an order in September giving permission for him to be extradited to the US to face charges of serious sexual assault following a lengthy extradition case in the Scottish courts. Representing himself in court on Thursday, Rossi moved a number of preliminary motions, including one calling for an extension to his appeal period to allow him more time to lead new evidence. He also moved to be granted bail and to have the court impose restrictions on the media reporting of his case. Rossi initially came to the attention of the authorities after he became ill with COVID-19 and was taken to the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow in December 2021. Despite a sheriff ruling that he is Rossi, he claims he is a victim of mistaken identity and is an Irish orphan called Arthur Knight. Rossi again argued in court on Thursday that he was the subject of mistaken identity and objected to lawyers referring to him by that name, which drew a rebuke from Lady Dorian. She reminded Rossi that his identity had already been established through earlier court proceedings, and insisted this is the name that she will use to address him during the appeal hearing. Lady Dorian, sitting alongside Lord Malcolm and Lord Armstrong, also rejected each of Rossi's preliminary motions, stating it is not the High Court's place to hear fresh evidence in the case and it is also not in a position to grant bail. Asked to provide a submission backing his appeal against the extradition, Rossi said that he had been previously ill-served by legal representatives and this led to him losing his earlier court case. Rossi is expected to complete his appeal submission to the court on Thursday afternoon. That article is written by Ross Hunter. This is from The National on Friday the 8th of December 2023. From the comments section. Division over Rwanda plan could hasten Tory government's demise. This article is written by James Kelly. 
It's not quite an iron law of UK politics, but almost. A Prime Minister on course for a crushing defeat at the next general election will generally try to delay that election for as long as possible in the hope that something will turn up. As long as his or her Commons majority is substantial, that would generally be a perfectly feasible strategy to attempt, because MPs would normally be bound to back a confidence vote in the government to save their own skin. So, when it appears that Rishi Sunak cannot risk turning the vote on his Rwanda plan into a confidence vote because some Tory MPs would actually be prepared to take the nuclear option, the only conclusion to draw is that his hand is abnormally weak, even in the context of his polling plight. In spite of some signs of the Labour lead narrowing a touch, the Tories remain around 15 points behind, on an average of the most recent polls, which is likely to translate to a landslide defeat for Sooner if, as speculation has it, he feels compelled to hold an election as soon as the spring, simply because the Tory party can no longer be controlled. There is also the danger, of course, that the diversions triggered by Robert Jenrick's resignation and the disunity over the Rwanda vote could see the Labour lead start to grow again. It's not that a majority of the public agree with Jenrick's critique of Sunak's stance. In fact, what polling evidence there is suggests the reverse is likely to be true. Sunak's logic that there is little point in stepping outside the European Convention on Human Rights if that will lead to Rwanda pulling out of the scheme will seem inescapable to most voters. But divided parties tend to be punished and it may also be that some of the minority voters who share Suella Braverman's dream of seeing migrants deported to a distant African country may be tempted to drift off to reform UK. It's no secret that Braverman continues to covet Sunak's job, and while it's likely her next bid will come only after a general election defeat, it's still possible that there will be enough letters sent to the 1922 committee to trigger a vote of confidence in the Tory leader himself. The chances are that he would survive, but the process would further damage his own public standing and that of his party. If he was ousted, on the other hand, the Tories would theoretically have the opportunity to start afresh and a new leadership. But, in truth, they would have become such a laughing stock by installing their fifth leader in five years that the scale of the Labour landslide might be even greater. None of this offers much comfort for the independence movement in Scotland. The most effective recruiting sergeant for the Yes camp is Tory rule, but perhaps more importantly, the SNP themselves have won majorities in Westminster elections, in part due to the seeming pointlessness of voting Labour. That trump card seems to be disappearing for the foreseeable future. It's arguably odd, then, that the SNP are approaching the general election with a relatively conservative strategy that aims to avoid scaring moderate voters as if they think the default is that people will continue voting SNP as long as they're not given any particular reason not to. In reality, the default in a Westminster election 
may well be Scots voting Labour to help kick the Tories out and to avoid that being the decisive impulse. The SNP may need to capture voters' imaginations with a much more dramatic offer on independence than they are currently planning. That article was written by James Kelly. This is from The National on Friday the 8th of December 2023. From the News section. First Minister quizzed on golf course plans at protected Scottish site. This article is written by Zander Elliards. The First Minister has been challenged on whether the Scottish Government ministers will call in a controversial planning application after approval was granted to build a golf course on a protected site. On Wednesday, Highland Council's planning committee voted to give the green light to development on Cool Links at Embo near Dornoch in Sutherland. The Cool Links site forms part of the Loch Fleet site of Special Scientific Interest, SSSI, and the Dornoch Firth and Loch Fleet Special Protection Area, SPA. While a decision to approve the golf course was welcomed by developers Communities for Cool Limited, C4C, environmental charities urged ministers to step in and block its progression, as they previously did in 2020. At First Minister's questions on Thursday, Green MSP Ariane Burgess raised the issue with Humza Yousaf. The Highlands and Islands MSP said, Yesterday, Highland Council granted planning consent for a golf course on Cool Links, an internationally recognised Ramsar site and site of special scientific interest. This was despite an objection from Nature Scott and planning officers recommending refusal on the basis of conflict with National Planning Framework 4 Policies 3, 4 and 10. Burgess finished... Will the First Minister confirm that the decision will now be called into ministers and reaffirm the Scottish Government's commitment to respecting all international treaty obligations, including the Ramsar Convention? A Ramsar site refers to the International Convention on Wetlands, which is named after the city of Ramsar in Iran, where it was signed in 1971. The Ramsar Sites Information Service provides details of some 2,500 protected wetland areas across the globe, including at Dornoch Firth and Loch Fleet covering cool links. Responding, the First Minister said he would not comment on a specific live case, but urged local authorities to respect their statutory obligations. He said, These are, of course, local decisions to be made, and I won't comment on a live application and whether ministers will call it in and what that decision will be. What I would say is, of course, the issues which Burgess raises in relation to the environmental impact of any planning application are incredibly important. Of course the impact any planning application could have on our nature and natural environment is of the utmost importance. I expect local government, local authorities to take account of these matters and make sure they're meeting their statutory obligations. In terms of a live application, she'll forgive me that I won't be able to comment any further. On Wednesday, C4C Director Gordon Sutherland said, 
We are absolutely delighted that councillors have voted in favour of our application after careful consideration of all the information presented to them. Our plans, which have had the backing of local people from the outset, offer a genuine chance to create much-needed new employment opportunities in an area where the working age population is falling, threatening the future viability of fragile communities. In 2020, the Scottish Government rejected plans to develop on cool links, saying, The Scottish Government has considered the reporter's findings carefully and agree with the recommendation that planning permission should be refused. The likely detriment to natural heritage is not outweighed by the socio-economic benefits of the proposal. That article was written by Zander Eliards. This is from The National on Friday the 8th of December 2023. From the news section. Keir Starmer faces pro-ceasefire protests as he arrives into Glasgow. This article is written by Ross Hunter. Keir Starmer was met by pro-ceasefire protesters as he arrived into Glasgow on Thursday night. The Labour leader is due to speak at a winter fundraising gala being held by Scottish Labour at the Crown Plaza Hotel. However, as he arrived into the city, protesters crowded the politician in order to criticise his stance on the Israel-Hamas war. He has so far refused to back calls for a ceasefire in Gaza, despite considerable rebellion within his own party. Footage of his arrival showed people shouting, Shame on you, as he arrived in Central Station. Video also showed two protesters being pinned down by police, while protesters chant, Let them go, outside the Crown Plaza Hotel. Police Scotland later confirmed that two people had been arrested. Earlier, he was confronted by a Scot on a train, who asked why he had so far refused calls to back a ceasefire. The Labour leader did not answer, and the man was quickly ushered away. The organisers of the protest, Stop the War Scotland, said they would be demanding Starmer support a ceasefire in Gaza. A statement read, Protesters will be demanding that Keir Starmer supports the call for an immediate and permanent ceasefire in Gaza. We believe it's abhorrent that the leader of the opposition continues to support the indiscriminate mass slaughter by the Israeli state of tens of thousands of innocent Palestinian men, women and children. A Police Scotland spokesperson said, We are aware of an ongoing protest at a premises in Congress Road, Glasgow, and an earlier protest in the Gordon Street area of the city. Officers are in attendance at Congress Road and engaging with the crowd. That article was written by Ross Hunter. This is from The National on Friday the 8th of December 2023. From the Culture section. Scotland versus Germany. Scottish broadcaster to air 2024 UEFA Euro opener. This article is written by Laura Pollock. A Scottish broadcaster has revealed it will air the opening match of the 2024 UEFA European Championships between Scotland and host Germany in Munich. On June the 14th, 2024, 
the opening match between Scotland and hosts Germany in Munich will, for viewers in Scotland, air exclusively on STV and STV Player. STV will also show England's final group game against Slovenia and will have picks 1, 2 and 3 of the round of 16, as well as first pick of the semi-finals. Plus, the channel will cover the winner of Playoff A, which could be Wales against Austria in Group D on the 21st of June. STV will also show what is likely to be one of the most anticipated early tournament games, the Group B match between Spain, who are among the favourites, and Italy, the holders. Among STV's group stage coverage are games featuring many pundits' favourites, France against Austria on the 17th of June, as well as other heavy hitters in Portugal versus Turkey on the 22nd of June, Croatia versus Spain on the 15th of June, and Belgium versus Slovakia on the 17th of June. STV has secured joint rights for the final match with the BBC, which has also announced plans to show Scotland's group games against Switzerland, 19th of June, and Hungary, 23rd of June, and England's first two group games against Serbia, 16th of June, and Denmark, 20th of June. All STV games will be shown on STV and STV Player, as well as ITV and ITVX for viewers outside of Scotland. Bobby Hayne, Managing Director of Broadcast at STV, said, As if the excitement of Scotland qualifying for another European Championship isn't enough, it's fantastic to know that Scotland fans will be able to enjoy every nail-biting minute of their opening match exclusively on STV and STV Player. Having the opportunity to show Scottish sport free to air on our channel is hugely important to us and we know the country will be united in front of their TVs to watch the national team's Euro 2024 journey as well as every other thrilling moment of the tournament next summer. That article was written by Laura Pollock. This is from The National on Friday the 8th of December 2023 from the news section. Scottish whisky industry celebrates bumper year for exports. This article is written by Lucy Garcia. Scotland's whisky industry is set to celebrate one of its best years, despite straitened financial circumstances. Figures from the Scotch Whisky Association, SWA, show that, so far, 2023 exports have increased by 17%, when compared to 2019. Indeed, it is believed exports of whisky could exceed £6 billion for only the second time in the industry's history. Yearly figures from the SWA won't be available until February. It comes after the UK government increased alcohol duty for spirits by 10.1% in August. However, in the UK's autumn statement, a duty freeze was placed across all four alcohol categories, including spirits. According to the SWA, it means that of the £15.63 pence spent on an average bottle of whisky, a total of £11.40 is collected through duty and VAT. Spirits continue to be taxed higher than beer, 
cider and wine. Kieran Healy Ryder, head of whisky discovery for White and Mackey, told trade publication The Spirit's Business, the tax framework in the UK disproportionately penalises whisky, and that framework does not look like it will be changed any time soon. He added that while distilleries continue to have a beneficial impact on Scotland's economy, they are hampered by a lack of investment in infrastructure, particularly ferries. Distilleries are often the biggest employer in a really tiny community. Getting to them has become so difficult in the past few years. The ferry infrastructure has been really challenging. The CEO of the SWA, Mark Kent, added that a trade deal between the UK and India in 2024 also had the potential to boost exports. A trade deal could reduce the 150% tariff on Scotch whisky in India, which was the largest market by volume for Scotch whisky in 2022, he said. That article was written by Lucy Garcia. This is from The National on Monday 11th December 2023. From the Politics section. Gary Lineker attacks Tory MP Jonathan Gullis in BBC impartiality spat. By Hamish Morrison. Gary Lineker has attacked a Conservative MP after the TV presenter was criticised for calling for the Rwanda deportation scheme to be ditched. Outspoken Tory backbencher Jonathan Gullis claimed the match of the day's presenter's backing of an open letter which took aim at the government's asylum policy was a breach of the BBC's impartiality rules. But Lineker, who has previously won a battle with the BBC over his political views, hit back on Twitter X saying, Jonathan hasn't read the new guidelines, or should I say, has someone read them to him? It sparked a furious reply from the Stoke-on-Trent MP who lashed out at Lineker in a rant about the Israel-Hamas war, accusing the TV presenter of being unconcerned about the Israeli hostages held by Hamas. He said, Gary, can you tell us when you plan to demand the release of the Israeli hostages held by Hamas? Just when I searched your ex-feed, the word hostages come up with no results. I know you once said Hamas are truly awful in a reply to someone on X, but seeing as you are not bound by the same rules others are in the BBC, would you be willing to call Hamas terrorists like everyone else? Gullis is one of a number of Tory MPs who are unhappy with the BBC's policy of not directly calling Hamas terrorists. He added... As for illegal migrants crossing in small boats, I want to see a stop to the trade in human life and deter people from unnecessarily risking their lives to come from France, a safe country, UN founder and NATO member. Quoting the great former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, Gullis added, If they attack one personally, it means they have not a single political argument left. Lineker was criticised on the front page of Monday's Daily Mail in a story about his involvement with the open letter regarding the government's efforts to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda. The letter stated, 
Our government is still trying to banish people fleeing persecution to Rwanda, despite the highest court in the land ruling the scheme unlawful. These policies aren't working for refugees, and they aren't working for local communities. That's why we have come together to say we've had enough. Enough of the division. Enough of the short-term thinking. Enough of the wasted human potential. And it's why we now call for something better. Adding his name to the letter, Lineker also released a statement saying refugees have escaped unthinkable horrors in their home countries. We need a new system that reflects the will of the British people. The BBC's impartiality rules tell the presenters of flagship programmes don't take up an official role in campaigning groups or become involved in fundraising for campaigning. They also bar major presenters from criticising the character of individual politicians in the UK and from endorsing or attacking political parties. Lineker won a battle with BBC chief Tim Davey after he was pulled from Match of the Day for comparing the way the Conservatives spoke about asylum seekers to Germany in the 30s. That article was by Hamish Morrison. This is from The National on Monday 11th December 2023. From the News section. Passengers get first look and ride on new Glasgow subway. By Rebecca Newlands. Lucky passengers got an exciting first look and ride on the new Glasgow subway trains. After a period of trial testing, Strathclyde Partnership for Transport, SPT, decided to enter the first of its new trains into the system on Monday morning. Those travelling got a glimpse into the new and improved modern trains, all of which have been custom-made due to Glasgow Subway's unique size. The new trains are the same length and size as the existing ones, but are now a four-car set as opposed to the current three-car set, with open gangways to make the most of the space available. SPT Project Director Mark Toner said, A decision was made that the first of the new trains should enter into passenger service this afternoon. It was an opportunity to see how they performed in service with passengers. We're delighted that the trains have performed as well as they have and that, more importantly, our passengers were happy to see them. Our old fleet has performed beyond its expected lifespan and it has become more and more challenging to maintain them and find parts for them as the years have gone on. This new fleet will take time to grow towards its full capability and reliability levels, but now that the first two trains have been introduced, Passengers will have the opportunity to see them intermittently and experience for themselves as they run alongside our existing fleet over the coming months. More new trains will also be introduced during 2024. The new trains are just one stage in the transport system's major modernisation programme as work is ongoing behind the scenes to replace the signalling and communications systems. A new operational control centre is also underway and SPT will be introducing platform screen doors to station platforms. 
After these milestones have been achieved, the firm will then look into the introduction of unattended train operation or driverless trains to the system. Toner added, There are still a couple of challenging key milestones to be reached before we can say subway modernisation is complete. I understand for passengers the new trains are the most important part of the programme as it is something tangible they can see. However, this brand new complex state-of-the-art system is going into a very old network and that does frustratingly for us all take time to deliver. We are still some way off seeing platform screen doors added to all stations which will be the next big thing for passengers before with the option of moving to driverless trains. That article was by Rebecca Newlands. This is from The National. On Monday 11th December 2023. From the Politics section. Scottish Government report showcases Embassies UK threatens to shut. By Abby Garton Crosby. The Scottish Government has published a report showcasing the work of its international offices as the Foreign Secretary threatens to shut them. In a letter to External Affairs Secretary Angus Robertson, David Cameron said the UK Government would withdraw cooperation from Scottish ministers after Hamza Yousaf met Turkey's President at COP28. Cameron, who was made a life peer to be able to take on the Foreign Secretary role under Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, said UK officials were not given sufficient advance notice of Yousaf's meeting with President Erdogan to attend. In response, the Tory Cabinet Secretary threatened to shut several Scottish Government offices abroad that are located in UK Government embassies and posts stating that officials would consider their presence. First Minister Hamza Youssef has described the move as petty. Just hours after the row erupted and the letter to Robertson emerged, the Scottish Government published its annual report showcasing the achievements of the International Network of Offices. In the foreword to the report, Robertson argues that the network delivers tangible benefits to our people, businesses and institutions. He said, from attracting overseas investment and growing exports to facilitating cultural exchanges, our active engagement on the global stage supports the delivery of Scotland's domestic policy objectives and the First Minister's three missions of equality, opportunity and community. Scotland has maintained an international presence for decades in order to secure insight, understanding, access and influence in key markets, Robertson added. The report sets out that there are seven Scottish Government international offices based in British embassies or high commissions, where the government pays an annual platform charge to the Foreign Office, Commonwealth and Development Office for access to facilities and local support. They are located in Ottawa in Canada, Washington DC in the USA, Beijing in China, Dublin in the Republic of Ireland, Paris in France, Berlin in Germany and Copenhagen in Denmark. 
There are also more than 30 Scottish Development International offices across the world, in locations across the United States, Europe, South Africa, Asia and Australia. The SDI network has supported over 360 companies looking to grow exports in the United States and forecasts £1.7 billion in trade figures for 2022-23. to The report also sets out the work of the International Network to engage with the Scottish diaspora and international communities. The Scottish Government has long believed that better engaging our diaspora can only benefit Scotland economically and enrich our culture, but also improve our connections and reputation with people linked to Scotland around the globe, the report adds. The Foreign Secretary has faced mounting criticism for his intervention and threatened to withdraw support for Scottish ministers. He wrote that any further breaches of FCDO officials not being present at meetings with international figures would result in no further FCDO facilitation of meetings or logistical support. We will also need to consider the presence of Scottish Government offices in UK Government posts. Cameron is following in the footsteps of his predecessor James Cleverley, now Home Secretary, who repeatedly threatened to withdraw FCDO assistance from Scottish ministers. It was suggested that UK diplomats were briefed to ensure that UK officials were involved in any meetings with SNP ministers and foreign governments in a bid to crack down on any talk of Scottish independence. That article was by Abby Garton Crosby. From the National... Tuesday the 12th of December, from the comment section, Karen Adam, UK is seeing an alarming shift towards authoritarianism, by columnist Karen Adam, MSP. As we mark the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, UDHR, on International Human Rights Day on Sunday, I couldn't help but reflect on the stark difference between Scotland's commitment to human rights and the recent unsettling trends from the UK government. Human rights are the bedrock of a civilised society and ensure dignity, freedom from discrimination, oppression and equality for all, principles I have seen Scotland wholeheartedly embrace time and time again. In Scotland, we've made commendable strides and continue to do so. Our legislative efforts, such as the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, the incorporation of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, UNCRC, into Scots law, and the proposed new Human Rights Bill signify our dedication to protecting the rights and dignities of every individual. As a member of the Equalities, Human Rights and Civil Justice Committee at Holyrood, I have heard firsthand how some of those laws could be profoundly impactful in real lives, offering protection and recognition to those who have long been marginalised. However, our progress faces significant obstacles, primarily stemming from the UK government's recent actions. The aggressive politicisation of human rights by the UK government, as highlighted by Human Rights Watch's director, Yasmin Ahmed, is deeply concerning. The government's incl- inclination to disapply the Human Rights Act in favour of policies such as the controversial Rwanda Asylum Plan 
illustrates a disturbing trend towards undermining established human rights protections. It is important we are aware that this approach is more than a political manoeuvring. It's an alarming shift towards authoritarianism, where rights and laws are selectively upheld based on political convenience. Such actions not only undermine the judiciary's integrity, but also erode the foundational principles of human rights, potentially causing irreparable damage to the democratic fibre of not just Scotland, but all four nations of the UK. Contrasting this, Scotland's human rights journey, though challenging, is marked by inclusivity and progress. The Scottish Parliament's unanimous vote last week to incorporate the UNCRC into domestic law was a landmark achievement, demonstrating our commitment to upholding international human rights standards. Yet this achievement was overshadowed by the UK government's challenge, which led to the Court of Session ruling that necessitated amendments to the Bill, limiting its scope within devolved powers. Make no mistake, the UK government chose to do this rather than allow the rights for our children be progressed. There was no legal imperative for them to force this through the courts, and this is just another example of being power-playing ideology rather than sensible and reasonable politics. What did they have to fear? Being held to account for damaging policies created by them which would infringe on Scotland's children's human rights, perhaps? The UK government's decision to use a Section 35 order to block the Scottish Gender Recognition Reform Bill further underscores their disregard for Scotland's democratic processes. This unilateral move not only disrespects the will of the Scottish people, but also impedes their efforts to create a more equal and understanding society. They use the lives of our trans citizens to cultivate a busting and bruising culture war, harming those who are already at a disadvantage. We are behind many other countries in trans rights. The fear stoked was reprehensible, and we will see the lasting effects for years to come, all for some cheap votes to bolster a government falling apart due to their own ineptitude and chaos. The UK government's actions starkly contrast with Scotland's vision of a society that respects and protects human rights. We, in Scotland, believe in a society where laws reflect our collective values and aspirations. Our legislative processes are not just about imposing laws, but about crafting them from the genuine needs of our people. When we see a UK government creating these wedge issues and culture wars against refugees, asylum seekers and trans people, you must ask, where is the humanity? Look at these people's lives. You will see and hear stories of adversity and battles just to exist. They certainly are not to blame for society's ills. As we navigate these challenges, the case for Scottish independence grows stronger. Independence is not merely a political aspiration, but a necessary pathway to safeguarding our fundamental rights and freedoms. It represents the power to enact laws that embody our ethos, protect the rights of our citizens, and build a society that truly represents the aspirations of its people. The contrast between Scotland's and the UK government's approach to human rights couldn't be more pronounced. While Scotland endeavours to embed the international human rights within, within domestic law and drive positive, transformative change, the UK government seems intent on regressing in hard-won freedoms. Their approach not only undermines our ability to hold human rights violators to account internationally, but also threatens the very essence of what a modern, inclusive nation stands for. In Scotland, we understand that human rights are about people, their dignity, their well-being and their ability to live fulfilling lives. 
Our commitment to incorporating international human rights treaties and recognising the right to a healthy environment is a testament to our dedication to building a better society for all. As we acknowledge International Human Rights Day, let's reaffirm our commitment to a Scotland where human rights are not just legal tenets, but lived experiences. We stand at a pivotal moment where our actions today will shape the future of human rights in Scotland. It's a future where every individual, regardless of their status, is treated with dignity and respect, a stark contrast to the path the UK government seems determined to tread. The significance of human rights in shaping a society that values equality, freedom and justice can't be understated. As we honour those who fought for these rights, let's renew our resolve to create a Scotland that leads with humanity and empathy, standing as a beacon of hope and progress in a world where such values are increasingly under threat. Our commitment to human rights is unwavering and, with independence, we can ensure that these rights are not just protected but flourish for generations to come. And that was a comment piece by Karen Adam, MSP. From the National, Tuesday the 12th of December, from the comment section, Miriam Brett, Scotland has the power to help beat the climate crisis. By Director of Research and Advocacy at Commonwealth Think Tank, Miriam Brett. One central issue sits at the heart of COP28, the critical climate talks that conclude today, will the world's governments agree to phase out fossil fuels, oil, gas and coal, that are driving the climate crisis? For some countries, such as the world's low-lying islands, the issue is one of survival. If temperatures are allowed to exceed the critical 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold, which the UN and other expert bodies have said is a given if we continue to open new oil and gas fields, some will become uninhabitable. Scotland, though, is in the small club of nations that are in the spotlight because of the power they have to avert such a crisis. Just one new development, the Rosebank oilfield off the coast of Shetland, will provide more emissions than the world's 28 lowest income countries do in a year. While decisions over oil and gas licensing rest at Westminster, the Scottish Government can harness its political and diplomatic power to send a powerful international signal on this, this issue. By committing to transitioning away from oil and gas, it would both show moral leadership and reap significant domestic benefits. While rapidly decarbonising the economy is crucial, how we do so and who benefits also matters. The scars of poorly managed industrial transitions of the past are evident enough through Scotland today. As Scotland prepares to embark on another industrial transformation, it is vital we do not repeat the mistakes of the past. Past promises to bring good green jobs to Scotland have not been realised, but no opportunities are there for the taking. In Scotland, this means creating well-paid, secure, unionised green jobs throughout urban and rural Scotland alike, supporting workers as part of a managed decline of carbon-intensive industries, and actively reducing social, economic and regional inequalities, alleviating poverty and increasing living standards. It is why Hamza Yousaf and Mary McAllen, the Net Zero Secretary, took a delegation of businesses to Dubai. With the world now in a race to decarbonise, this year's COP talks have been an opportunity to demonstrate commitment and attract investment. Here, Scotland has a model to follow in Denmark, which has not only planned to take a 20% stake in several planned offshore wind farms, 
but has sent the strongest of signals to investors of its commitment to the transition to clean power. Denmark is a founding member of the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, a group of first mover countries committed to a man- managed out to a managed phase out of oil and gas production. This is the club to which Scotland needs to belong if it is to reap the benefits of the transition away from fossil fuels. By contrast, the UK's oil and gas industry is already experiencing decline thanks to the age-depleted nature of the basin. Jobs supported by the industry have more than halved in the past decade, despite the government issuing hundreds of new licences, but the lack of industrial policy means the country has failed to build the alternative. Another reason is that North Sea oil and gas operators effectively drafted the North Sea's transition plan, but roughly three quarters of them invest nothing in UK renewables. In the two years since the Glasgow Climate Talks, the UK's reputation as a climate leader has been damaged immeasurably thanks to Rishi Sunak's pledge to max out North Sea oil and gas while watering down policies to tackle climate change. Scotland's politicians wanted to shout louder above this noise, but then the country has more at stake. And that was a comment piece by Miriam Brett, who is co-director of the Future Economy Scotland think tank. From the National, Tuesday the 12th of December, from the comment section, Trans lives will hang in the balance until section 35 is overturned. Article by Ellie Gummersall. This time last year there was a real sense of hope in the air among Scotland's trans community and their allies. Seven years, dozens of rallies, hundreds of amendments, but hope was on the horizon as it was clear the parliamentary arithmetic meant that the Gender Recognition Reform, Scotland Bill, was almost certain to pass through the Scottish Parliament. And then, of course, it did. A two-thirds majority of MSPs, including members of all five of the parties represented in Holyrood at the time, voted for the legislation after hours of late-night debates and the trans community breathed a sigh of relief as the years of scrutiny and their rights and lives being in the spotlight would finally come to an end. Oh, how peaceful those few days were. Of course, what followed has been one of the most hostile years for trans and LGBT plus equality in recent memory, beginning with the blocking of the bill by Alistair Jack at the start of January and fittingly concluding with the confirmation that such a move was legal with Lady Haldane's ruling last week. In the time between these pivotal moments, we've seen transphobic hate rise to record rates and the UK government and media pounce on trans people and their lives as ammunition in the so-called culture wars. So where do we go from here? It's easy to feel a sense of despair following last week's judgement, not only for the bill itself, but for the general direction of trans rights in the UK. It's natural and normal to feel that pain, especially when the legislation could have made such a direct and significant impact on our lives and was struck down by Westminster in a move driven by hate and ideology. That being said, hope is not all lost. The Scottish Government will no doubt be currently discussing with its lawyers the possibility of an appeal to the ruling and calls have already been made to consider all options for an appeal by leading LGBT plus charities as well as the Scottish Green Party. It's not clear at this moment how likely an appeal is to succeed, but if there's any chance of it succeeding at all, the Scottish Government must take it. Devolution and the very fabric of Scottish democracy are far too important for them not to do so, regardless of the contents of the bill itself.
Let's say, though, that any routes to appeal fail. What then? Well, the bill has simply passed through the Scottish Parliament and sit, still sits in its books. The Section 35 order simply prevents it from being proceeding to royal assent and becoming law. That means that any future Scottish Secretary of State in the UK government could simply choose to lift the Section 35 order and the bill would pass to, the, to royal assent and would become law. With it looking increasingly unlikelier by the day that the current rotting Conservative Party will be vacating Whitehall by this time next year, all eyes should be on Ian Murray, Alistair Jack's most likely replacement in an upcoming Starmer-led government, who could reset the relationship between Holyrood and Westminster in his first days in office by lifting Section 35 and allowing trans people to thrive. Once again, the likelihood of this actually happening remains to be seen, and Scottish Labour's flip-flopping on the issue of the bill has been nothing short of embarrassing for them and traumatic for the trans community. Scottish Labour whipped their MSPs to vote for the bill last December, but their response to Section 35 was to play the both sides game, as is our modus operandi, terrified by that any semblance of solidarity within the Scottish Government would alienate their hardline unionist voter base, the trans community be damned, that's not to absolve the Scottish Government from blame entirely. If the SNP had passed these reforms when it first promised seven years ago, the policy would have aligned with that of Theresa May's government in Westminster, and many of the woes the SNP currently face likely would never have manifested, but that's a whole other column. There is no question that in the case of Section 35, this was an overreach by Westminster, trampling on devolution, Scottish democracy and the trans equality in a single singular stomp. Not all the reaction from Labour at the time was poor. I recall the response from Paul Sweeney's MSP quite well. It's about time Viceroy Jack got back into his box, he told the media following the announcement, which he also described as a politically malicious act. I question if Murray were to sit idly by and refuse to lift the Section 35 order if, beco- if he becomes the next Scottish Secretary of State, whether we will hear calls of Viceroy Murray from Scottish Labour MSPs. Will Murray, a potential future Scottish Secretary of State from the so-called Party of Devolution, stand up for the democratic right of the Scottish Parliament to pass laws within its default competency? Will he allow a bill to pass with his own party whipped in support of? The past few weeks are anything to go by. I won't get my hopes up. Murray's response to last week's ruling was as weakened and as a wet paper towel, simply noting that the ruling should be respected and continuing the blame both sides narrative that has become all too familiar from Labour. In an interview in October, he refused to categorically rule out the use of Section 35 himself. It raises more questions about where Labour MPs in Scotland get their orders from. Is it from the Scottish Labour who supported and voted for the Gender Recognition Reform Bill? Or is it from Keir Stammer and his UK Labour Party, which is so desperate for the votes of Tory voting middle Englanders that he'll throw any minority under the bus to do so? Murray may soon have the ability to answer this question once and for all, but it's ordinary trans people whose rights and futures hang in the balance. And that was a comment piece by Ellie Gummersall. The National, recorded on... Wednesday 13th of December 2023, the Culture Section, five of the top Scottish archaeological discoveries in 2023, by Adam Robertson, multimedia journalist.
Scotland has had its fair share of incredible archaeological discoveries over the past year, with a number of groundbreaking finds. From a possible Neolithic hall to an elite Iron Age hill fort, there's been plenty work done across the country to unearth more about Scotland's fascinating history. Now dig it, a hub for Scottish archaeology has compiled its annual list of some of the biggest discoveries of the year. A possible Neolithic timber hall in Murray. Beginning with the oldest discovery on the list, this possible Neolithic timber hall was identified by AOC Archaeology in Port Gordon. It was found in late 2022 during an evaluation and excavation between January and March 2023 in advance of proposed development works. Archaeologists believe it dates from between 4100 BC to 3500 BC, as the layout resembles a number of other examples found in Scotland. More than 240 pieces of prehistoric pottery were also recovered from the site, including fragments of carinated and unstun bowl. Bronze Age discovery at Shetland Spaceport site. In June, the remains of what may have been an early Bronze Age ritual cremation cemetery were found at a rocket launch site in Unst. Again, the discovery was made by AOC Archaeology, who were carrying out a watching brief during groundworks at the Saxavord Spaceport site. This included careful observation of excavation works within a development site to ensure any remains that are revealed are identified and recorded. Several features, including pits, boulders and cremations, surviving as deposits of burn bone, have been uncovered. The remains are believed to date from around 2200 BC to 1800 BC. Elite Iron Age Hillfort in Stirlingshire One of Stirlingshire's late Iron Age sites, which may have been built and occupied by local tribes before, during and after the Roman invasions of Scotland, was uncovered at Keir Hill of Dasher in Kippen. With the help of volunteers, Rampart Scotland and Kippen Heritage have uncovered distinct phases of fortifications at the previously undated site over the last three years. This site is thought to date from around AD 1 to 400. Evidence of Medieval German Merchants in Orkney In February, medieval pottery specialists from eight countries discovered traces of Orkney and Shetland's contact with merchants from Hansa Towns, a group of German cities who expanded into the North Atlantic in the 15th century. It was identified in museum collections in both Orkney and Shetland, as well as in recent assemblages unearthed by the University of the Highlands and Islands. This includes shards, pieces, from a late medieval building uncovered in 2023 in Rousey, demonstrating how the island was part of a wider European network. Rare cliffside cableways in Aberdeenshire in April and May, the Scape Trust surveyed and recorded rare, possibly unique, iron and steel cableways which were used to lift nets, gear and fish from coves to the top of steep cliffs in Aberdeenshire. Introduced in the 19th century, the technology was borrowed for the fishing industry in Aberdeenshire when natural coves were developed into small salmon harbours. The fishing stations are now largely disused, but remaining elements such as these make the sites important for preserving modern fishing heritage. Dr Jeff Sanders, Project Manager at the Society of Antiquities of Scotland's Digit Project, commented, It's been another incredible year of discovery which has underscored archaeology's relevance to contemporary issues. Whether it's new chapters of Scotland's story being unearthed by development-driven archaeology or local groups documenting the impact of climate change in coastal sites, and this is just a small selection, there were dozens of other exciting finds ranging from a Neolithic monument in Arran to a coin hoard that could be linked to the Glencoe Massacre. 
If you're feeling inspired, why not make 2024 the year you get stuck into archaeology by visiting a site, volunteering at a fieldwork event, or digging into online resources? By Adam Robertson, The National, recorded on Tuesday 12th of December 2023. The Culture Section Travel, Robin McKelvey, A Fishy Tale with Happy Ending to Gia Travels By Robin McKelvey, Travel Writer I love Gia Halibut. It's hard not to, a delicious fish farmed in a sustainable way on a Scottish island. But Gia Halibut is soon to be no more as spiralling costs and soaring energy bills have sunk this fantastic Hebridean business. As I approach Gia, it is with some anxiety, fearing that the halibut may be symbolic of a wider decline in this community-owned island. Ted Creek, skipper of the small Dunoon-based small cruise ship, The Splendor, www.ardgylecruising.com, I am on eases my fears a little. Gia still has a really strong, impressively strong sense of community. There's still a lot going on, and I've seen some really encouraging signs. Stepping ashore on an island only seven miles by one and a half miles, I see an encouraging sign immediately. Despite the impending loss of Gia Halibut from their menu, the boathouse still offers an impressive sweep of local seafood and meat. This is an island that dishes up superb oysters, beef and lamb and the boathouse has been mentioned in Michelin dispatches now for five years running. This is one of my favourite spots in the Hebrides to dine, feasting in the freshest of fresh local produce, overlooking a white sand beach lapped by aquarium-clear waters. Things get brighter still when a short walk into the village brings the nook, which serves up a rich bounty of fresh local seafood. Here too, Gia Halibut is on the menu, but they have queenie scallops and other fishy delights too, and crucially, no fears about the impending loss of local halibut. It's a real shame, but we have lashings of other seafood available to us from the island and also from Kintyre, which is only three miles away across the water. People have a real appetite for the local seafood and we want to keep delivering that, they tell me. The Nook is not alone as a thriving business. There are arts and crafts people and an outdoor activity company, the Gear Activity Centre, which offers water sports gear and now e-bikes for exploring this sinewy island. They're a great way to get around, especially with a new off-road bike track going in that connects the new campsite with the north of the island. In total, there are 9 kilometres of new and upgraded paths that help visitors weave their way between the bountiful farmland and the beach-kissed coast. Everyone I speak to reports a good summer season. There is hope for 2024. This is all good news for an island I've been watching closely since the Isle of Gia Heritage Trust bought it when it came on the market in 2001 after the last private owner, Derek Holt, sold. This community buyout was made possible by £3.5 million from the Scottish Land Fund via the National Lottery and £500,000 from Highlands and Islands Enterprise. The community in turn agreed to repay £1 million after the 2002 buyout saddling the new community with debts it struggled to pay off in the following years. In those tricky, fledgling days, the population started as low as 92. I'm delighted to find out from the lovely staff at the island's lifeblood store that it has now risen to nearly 170. Back then, when I first visited Gia, the local housing stock was in seriously bad nick too. The community worked hard to shore up the houses and I'm delighted to hear that New community housing is planned. The primary school role is up too. Essential for any island community looking to push on. Despite the issues that you would expect any community project to have to tackle, my experience is that Gia is very much a can-do island. Take the local electricity grid. 
The community have managed to source their own second-hand wind turbines, locally dubbed the Dancing Ladies, which not only power the local homes and businesses, but even sell power back into the national grid in the mainland. Another recent community project has been to resurrect the 54-acre Achamore Gardens. These gardens were first laid out by Sir James Horlick of the multi-bedtime drink fame. The gardens now employ two full-time gardeners, who are assisted in their impressive work by a team of island volunteers. What they've achieved since my last visit is remarkable, considering last time I had genuine fears that the gardens would just become reclaimed by Mother Nature in all her wildness. I came ashore in Gia, worried about the demise of Gia Halibut and what the, that might mean for Gia, the most southerly of her Hebrides. I leave still gutted by this severe loss, but also heartened by a dynamic community that continues to hurdle all obstacles in its way to make a success of owning their own island. It is a model of a community drive that perhaps has lessons for other Scottish islands too. Travel tip of the week. I'm taking my girls in to experience Edinburgh's Hugmanay this year, but I always stress to people there's so much else going on around Scotland. Two of my favourite events are fire festivals bursting with community spirit. The Comrie Flambeau sees Perthshire come alive with a fiery parade through to the River Erne, which rids the village of evil spirits for the year to come. Then there is the Stonehaven Fireballs, whose swirling balls of fire are quite a sight as they are swung around the heads of the bearers. At both events, they expect lots of fire, drams and good community cheer. By Robin McKelvey. The National News on Wednesday the 13th of December. Centuries-old Scots pine saved as part of Highlands Rewilding Project. An article written by Adam Robertson. A remote ancient woodland containing Scotland's oldest wild Scots pine has been saved by a rewilding charity from being lost forever. Trees for Life stepped in to save dozens of pines throughout Glenloyne in the Northwest Highlands after they were identified to be at risk from overgrazing by excessive numbers of deer. The charity has erected deer-proof fencing around the perimeter of the woodland with permission from the landowner to protect the trees from harm and allow young seedlings to grow without being eaten. The oldest pine in the grouping of some 57 pines, all of which are believed to be several centuries old, has been dated as being 565 years old by St Andrew's Tree Ring Laboratory. Trees for Life surveyed the site as part of its four-year Caledonian Pinewood Recovery Project, one of the most comprehensive surveys of the health of Scotland's pinewoods. The team found that some of the oldest pines were outside an area of fencing which had been erected in the 1990s to protect them from grazing pressure and that deer had also breached the perimeter. The charity has since put up 1.5 kilometres of new fencing and renewed existing sections with heavy-duty materials brought to the remote glen by helicopter. It's hoped that the pine wood will now be able to regenerate naturally for the first time in decades. James Rainey, senior ecologist at Trees for Life, said Glen Loyne's wild pines and other Caledonian pinewoods are globally unique and a special part of Scotland's character and culture. Saving and restoring them offers a major opportunity for tackling the nature and climate crises. Fencing is only a temporary fix, but for now it's a vital way of giving these precious pinewoods a fighting chance of recovery until effective landscape-scale deer management can be properly established. Historically part of the royal hunting grounds of Clerny, the Glenloyne woodlands would once have been home to Capacali, Wildcat and Lynx. 
Ordnance survey maps from 1874 show a more extensive woodland in the Glen, but by the 1990s there were only 85 ancient pines left, a number that has since been reduced further to just 57. The Nature Recovery Project has been funded by the family of Harry Stephen, who with Jock Carlyle wrote The Native Pinewoods of Scotland, published in 1959. The book recognised the special status of the pinewoods and documented 35 wild pine populations that had survived centuries of deforestation. In the 1990s, the work of Mr Stephen and Mr Carlyle led to the then Forestry Commission Scotland, compiling Scotland's official Caledonian Pinewood Inventory, which today recognises 84 sites. Glen Loyne on the East Glen Coich estate lies within the Afric Highlands, the UK's largest rewilding landscape. Led by Trees for Life and Rewilding Europe, the 30-year community-focused initiative will restore woodland, peatland and riverside habitats over half a million acres from Loch Ness to the West Coast. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday the 13th of December. Mass stranding of rare fish leaves Scottish Island's residents baffled. An article written by Adam Robertson. Residents living in Orkney have been left baffled by the stranding of thousands of fish on the beaches in Chapinsay and in Finstown. Atlantic sori are considered to be rare in local waters, although in the last few days thousands have apparently deliberately swum ashore to die, according to the BBC. Secretary of the Orkney Trout Fishing Association, Malcolm Russell, told the broadcaster that some fish he returned to the sea turned back and grounded themselves again. Residents have also reported seeing thousands on beaches including Elwick Bay in Chapinsay and in the Bay of Firth at Finstown. Mr Russell says it is possible they were following sand eels into the bay or that heavy rain at the weekend made the water less salty than usual. However, he said he could not explain why they did not swim back to the Atlantic once they got into difficulty. Nature Scott's Marine Sustainability Manager, Dr David Donnan, added, Sorry are known to occur in shoals close to shore and sometimes occur in large numbers. There are occasional records of sori being stranded. For example, there are records from the Cape Cod area on the American East Coast. There are a number of possible causes for stranding, including lack of food or poor weather conditions, such as extreme cold and stormy conditions. As well, sometimes sori may be pursued in shallow waters by predators. Therefore, it's difficult to point to a specific cause in this case, and that's not unusual it's probably more likely to be a natural cause than a human-induced one. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National Politics on Wednesday the 13th of December. Rwanda plan could be subject to a Scottish court block, says Joanna Cherry. An exclusive article written by Hamish Morrison. Rishi Sunak's Rwanda plan poses a threat to the powers of Scotland's highest civil court and opens the UK government up to a legal challenge from Edinburgh, ministers have been warned. The UK government's new Rwanda bill seeks to circumvent the Supreme Court's block on deporting asylum seekers to the Central African nation, but could be subject to fresh legal troubles because it tramples on the authority of the Court of Session, according to SNP MP Joanna Cherry. 
The bill was passed by a majority of 44 votes on Tuesday night after a number of Tory rebels, including former Home Secretary Suella Braverman, abstained in a bid to tank the bill. During a debate on the bill on Tuesday evening, the King's Council, who led the battle to overturn Boris Johnson's unlawful prorogation of Parliament in 2019, told MPs she was concerned the bill would affect the rights of the court. She said the bill arguably threatened one of the Court of Session's rights, which is known as the nobile officium. It gives the court the ability to plug gaps in the law or offer mitigations if the law was seen to be too strict. But because the Rwanda bill explicitly bars courts from considering human rights claims against deportations to the Central African nation on the grounds it is unsafe, the Court of Sessions' nobile officium, enshrined in the Act of Union, would be overridden, Ms. Cherry argued. It raises the possibility that the Scottish government or another interested party could challenge the bill in the Court of Session. Speaking afterwards, Ms. Cherry said, "This bill is such an affront to the rule of law, the separation of powers, and the universality of human rights that there's already talk of a legal challenge on the grounds that the bill is unconstitutional." Given the issues which I raised on the floor of the House today, which are peculiar to Scotland, and Lord President Cooper's dictum in the case of McCormack against the Lord Advocate, that the principle of the unlimited sovereignty of Parliament is a distinctively English principle which has no counterpart in Scots law, I'm thinking that raising such an action in the Court of Session could explore these issues, in addition to any issues that any English courts might look at, and perhaps have a better chance of success. Her intervention came after it was revealed the Union for Border Force Guards was considering launching a legal challenge against the bill. The Guardian reported on Tuesday that the PCS Union was considering taking the government to court to argue that the bill is unconstitutional, which it said would break new legal ground. An exclusive article written by Hamish Morrison, The National Politics, on Wednesday, the 13th of December. Sir John Curtis explains how the Rwanda bill may impact on the general election. An article written by Adam Robertson. Polling expert Professor Sir John Curtis has given his verdict on how Rishi Sunak's Rwanda bill may impact the timing of the next general election. The Prime Minister is facing a New Year showdown on his immigration policy after right-wing Tory MPs said they could vote it down if it's not tightened. Mr. Sunak won a crunch vote on Tuesday on the safety of Rwanda bill after spending the day in talks with potential rebels to avoid a defeat on his flagship Stop the Boats pledge. During an interview with the BBC's Good Morning Scotland programme, Professor Curtis was asked where the bill needs to go for Mr. Sunak to choose when the next Westminster election might be. He said, "The honest truth is that, given the government is still nearly 20 points behind in the opinion polls, I think even if this bill were to be defeated or to be significantly amended, this government is not in the position to deploy the threat of going to the country. Going to the country at the moment would probably look like a suicide mission." MPs approved the bill at a second reading by 313 votes to 269, giving the UK government a winning majority of 44. Although dozens abstained, no Tory MP voted against the bill. Following the result, Mr. Sunak tweeted, 
The British people should decide who gets to come to this country, not criminal gangs or foreign courts. That's what this bill delivers. We will now work to make it law so that we can get flights going to Rwanda and stop the boats. Elsewhere on the BBC programme, Professor Curtis said the vote was a safer win than some of the speculation anticipated. He added the problem right-wing Tory MPs had was whether or not they would be able to put anything forward that both they and the opposition parties would be willing to vote for. Professor Curtis also said where the government had to worry was if opposition parties or the House of Lords started to craft amendments that appealed to the more centrist Conservative MPs. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National Politics on Wednesday the 13th of December. Tory defector Lisa Cameron given Scotland off his job weeks after quitting the SNP. An article written by Abby Garton Crosby. Tory defector Lisa Cameron was given a job as an assistant to Alistair Jack in the Scotland office just weeks after quitting the SNP. The East Kilbride MP who joined the Conservative benches in the House of Commons in October was reportedly given the job of Parliamentary Private Secretary for the Scottish Secretary last month. According to the Daily Record, the Scotland office confirmed Ms Cameron's appointment on Tuesday and admitted she was given the job just weeks after defecting. A parliamentary private secretary is a role generally given to a backbencher to be the eyes and ears of the minister in the Commons and is unpaid. It comes as the Foreign Office confirmed that they will be leaving their offices in East Kilbride to move to a site in Glasgow – described as a hammer blow to the community by local SNP MSP Colette Stevenson. It's understood that Ms Cameron joined Mr Jack at Scotland Questions in the Commons on November the 29th. We previously told how Ms Cameron claimed she was shunned by other SNP MPs at Westminster after challenging the support given to Patrick Grady, who was suspended from the Commons and forced to apologise after being found to have acted inappropriately towards a party staffer. Miss Cameron claimed the mood in the Westminster group was toxic and impacted her mental health. Her latest appointment prompted a furious response from her former SNP East Kilbride colleagues. Grant Costello, who will contest the East Kilbride seat for the SNP at the next general election and won the selection contest against the incumbent MP, said Lisa Cameron's acceptance of a government job at the same time the UK government is scrapping its promises to the people of East Kilbride is beyond belief. She should be fighting for people's jobs at Abercrombie House to keep them in East Kilbride, not her own promotion. Ms Cameron had previously threatened to resign as an MP and trigger a by-election in the seat if she did not win the SNP nomination for the seat. She voted with the Conservatives for the first time on October the 17th, backing a UK government amendment to the levelling up and regeneration bill. Ms Cameron later claimed she was exhausted by nationalism after joining the Tory benches. An article written by Abby Garton Crosby. The National Politics on Wednesday the 13th of December If you want less immigration, vote for Labour, according to Sakir Starmer. An article written by Hamish Morrison Sakir Starmer has said that voters who want lower immigration should vote Labour as he continues his aggressive pursuit of Conservative voters. 
The Labour leader also underlined how much the party had changed since he took over from Jeremy Corbyn, pointing out the former leader would not be standing as a Labour candidate at the next election. Making a speech in Milton Keynes yesterday, Mr Starmer tried to paint Labour as being tough on immigration, a marked difference from how the party approached the issue under his predecessor. He said the Conservatives were not the party of common sense and said they were not Churchill's Tories anymore, adding, if anything, they behave more and more like Donald Trump. They look at the politics of America and they want to bring that here. Towards the end of his speech, Zakir Starmer said, if, in short, you want lower migration and higher wages, or even if you just want a government committed to economic stability, the rule of law, good public services, restoring Britain's standing, making family life more secure and putting the country first, then I say again, this is what a changed Labour Party will deliver. It came ahead of a crunch vote for the Prime Minister in the Commons yesterday on the government's new Rwanda bill. Mr Sunak staved off a humiliating defeat as, despite fears, right-wing Conservative MPs did not move in sufficient numbers to block the bill, designed to remedy problems with the previous legislation which was struck down by the Supreme Court. The right of the Tory party is concerned that the bill does not go far enough to prevent asylum seekers from appealing deportations. Asked about the scheme yesterday, Mr Starmer said the Rwanda deal doesn't work, it will cost a fortune and it's against our values, but said a Labour government would try to break criminal gangs trafficking asylum seekers over the channel. He said, we will oppose the scheme this evening for a number of reasons. It doesn't work, it will cost a fortune and it's against our values. That doesn't mean we don't recognise the challenge that there is of crossing on small boats across the channel. We have to stop that, we have a duty to stop. But stopping that means not gimmicks, but rolling our sleeves up with a practical plan that will actually work. Mr Starmer also would not rule out schemes employed by other countries which see asylum seekers' claims processed abroad. There are various schemes, as you know, around the world where individuals are processed, usually en route to their country of destination, elsewhere, he said. The Rwanda scheme isn't one of those. This is a straight deportation scheme in relation to people who've already arrived. Other countries around the world do have schemes where they divert people on the way and process them elsewhere. That's a different kind of scheme. And look, I'll look at any scheme that might work. Challenged on why he campaigned for Mr Corbyn to become Prime Minister in 2019 before dumping him when he took over as Labour leader, Mr Starmer said, We did lose our way. We lost our way into that 2019 election four years ago today. And when you lose an election that badly, you don't look at the electorate and say, what on earth were you thinking? You change your party, and evidence of how far we've changed our party is that Jeremy Corbyn won't be able to stand as a candidate, a Labour candidate, at the next general election. An article written by Hamish Morrison. The National, Thursday 14th of December from the News Section. Scotland to England Renewable Energy Cable Project awarded £1.8 billion by Ross Hunter. A power grid project transporting renewable energy from Scotland to the north of England has been awarded contracts worth £1.8 billion. 
The Eastern Greenlink 1 project will see the construction of a 2.5 billion high-voltage power line along the east coast from East Lothian to County Durham. Work on the project is due to commence in 2025 and is set to be one of the UK's largest grid upgrades in decades. International cable manufacturing company Persium Group has now been awarded the contract to deliver nearly 400 kilometres of power cable. Meanwhile, GE Vernova and Metalonius were contracted to supply two converter stations, one at each end of the cable. In total, 176 kilometres of subsea cables will be installed from just south of Thornton Lock Beach in East Lothian through Scottish and English waters to just north of the town of Seam in County Durham. Once completed, they will be able to transport 2 gigawatts of renewable energy created in Scotland, largely from offshore wind to consumers in the rest of the UK. It is enough energy to power 2 million homes. EGL1's project director, Peter Roper, said, EGL1 is a transformative project for the UK, enhancing security of supply and helping to connect and transport green power for all customers. These contract announcements are big wins for the supply chain and another important milestone as we build the new network infrastructure to help the UK meet its net zero and energy security ambitions. We look forward to working in collaboration with Persium, GE Vernova and Metalonius as the project continues to progress. According to National Grid, who are running the project in conjunction with Scottish Power, necessary upgrades to the UK's energy grid will cost billions of pounds. They warn that five times as many pylons need to be constructed by the end of the decade than have been built in the past 30 years if climate targets are to be met on time. This was an article, Scotland to England Renewable Energy Cable Project, awarded £1.8 billion by Ross Hunter. This is from The National. On Thursday, 14th December 2023. From The Culture Section. Scottish oat brand milk to be distributed UK-wide for first time. By Ross Hunter. Oat milk produced in Scotland is to be distributed UK-wide for the first time. Bros is the only oat milk brand which sources and produces its product entirely within Scotland. Earlier this year, the National spoke to company co-founder Josh Barton about the historical pedigree of Scottish oats and the challenges to growth in the sector. Now, Bros has won £100,000 of funding through Scotland's biggest business funding competition, Scottish Edge. The funding will allow the company to grow further, with bosses reporting that they have customers already prepared to commit to orders to the value of £500,000 per year. Plans are in the works for the creation of extended shelf life products, which will allow the company to extend into the UK-wide market 
and compete with brands such as Minor Figures. Production of existing Bros products is also set to be scaled up and the company will seek SALSA accreditation, a scheme which assists local food and drink producers to supply their products to national and regional buyers. The company is aiming for a turnover of sales of £1 million by 2025 and a whopping £10 million by 2030. Barton told The National, We are delighted to have this opportunity provided by Scottish Edge. This funding will enable us to scale up our production capacity to reach that next level. With our new distribution partners, Lomond Foods and Food Options, we will be supplying businesses and retail outlets across the UK. Not only will we be able to share a premium, Scottish and gluten-free oat milk that people have been waiting for, we'll also be creating jobs and opportunities for local people, all while celebrating Scotland's agricultural heritage. Bros was founded in 2017 and is based out of East Lothian. It already supplies one of the UK's biggest catering companies, as well as the Balmoral Hotel and dozens of cafes and coffee shops. That article was by Ross Hunter. This is from The National on Thursday 14th December 2023 from the Culture section. Iconic Scottish cinema to be restored after funding granted by Adam Robertson The charity responsible for bringing back an iconic Scottish cinema has been granted funding to purchase the building following a successful bid to the Scottish Land Fund. The Broadway Cinema in Prestwick originally opened in 1935 but has now been shut for almost 20 years. Friends of the Broadway is working to redevelop the building as a multi-purpose entertainment venue. The group's chairman, Guy Walker, said, Bringing back the Broadway started as a dream held by a committed group of Prestwick residents. Today, that dream came true. The building will be owned by the community. And we are bringing the Broadway back for everyone who said they would love to see films here again. Over the years, people have asked us what's happening with the building and expressed their wish for something for young and older people to do in the town. Well, this is our Christmas present to you. The Scottish Land Fund has awarded the charity the majority of the purchase price, with building owner Buzzworks Group contributing a significant six-figure discount to allow it to pass into community ownership. Buzzworks Chairman Colin Blair said, We are proud to support Friends of the Broadway and hope this further significant financial contribution will allow the group to continue its vital work in preserving this historic building, while creating an amenity for the community of Prestwick to enjoy for years to come. The Scottish Land Fund also awarded a further £50,000 
for immediate essential maintenance and further funding to hire a project development officer to drive forward the next phases of renovation. The cinema originally seated more than 1,000 people and large parts of the building remain unchanged. The last film was shown in 1976, before it was put to many uses, including as a leisure centre and amusement arcade. The charity intends to restore the building to its original purpose, in partnership with architects Burrell Foley Fisher, who specialise in heritage cinema and theatre design. That article was by Adam Robertson. That concludes this week's edition of the National Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Tune Review and to tell your friends about our service. 